As a rare return visitor to Downstage Center, today's guest last spoke with us in 2005 during the New York premiere of his 69th play, Private Fears in Public Places, as it made its New York debut. He has premiered five new plays since then, My Wonderful Day, Awaking Beauty, Life and Beth, If I Were You, and the newest, number 74, Life of Riley. In addition, he has seen Private Fears adapted as a film, his trilogy, The Norman Conquests, revived with great success in London and in New York, and he has relinquished his long-held post as artistic director of the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough, England. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very happy to spend another hour with Sir Alan Akeborn. Welcome. Thank you. Normally, when I read Playbill bios, they're very perfunctory. And I was struck last night by the following phrase in uh, your bio, which goes beyond the usual listing of plays and accomplishments. Uh, Alan Akeborn was born in Hampstead in 1939 to a violinist father and a mother who was a writer. No doubt he inherited their creativity, but a bigger gift was his first close-up view of two people who couldn't be happy together. That is revelatory both about your life and perhaps about your writing. And I'm wondering why you would choose to include that in in your average program bio. Uh, I think it, is, it probably is so integral to my attitude towards married relationships and um, unmarried relationships between men and women um, that I, I think it is quite important. In the sense that you explore in so many of your plays troubled marriages and indeed marital infidelity. Why Why is that a recurring theme? Is it because you were formed from that as a child? I think partly that and partly as, as the old maxim goes, uh, there's nothing duller to put on stage than a happy marriage and a happy contented relationship. Nothing much happens. Um, so um, uh, Ian, so Ian McKellen always has that jokey introduction to his uh, his Shakespeare one-man show, and he says, "Name a happy marriage in Shakespeare," and there's a long pause, and then someone puts their hand up and says, "The Macbeths," but only for a little bit. <laughs> uh, so um, the um, the answer is dramatically they're more interesting, um, partly because they they make better drama, and partly because my audience always sit there going. Well, thank God our marriage has got to be better than this. Um, and um, But sitting, looking at happy, contented people, as one character of one of my plays says um, in Man of the Moment, um, makes for very bad theatre. Uh, there's no drama in two people sitting, smiling contentedly at each other, except for each other. Um, and we don't want to share in that. <laughs> so there we go. So that's the reason I write them. Then how do you feel about the happy ending? I, I sometimes have happy endings, um, but only occasionally. Um, I, I try and make them real endings. And life, as we know, is 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 a, is a bit of a lottery. Sometimes things end well, um, and sometimes they don't. Um, comedy is tragedy interrupted, and tragedy is comedy interrupted. Um, so, if the arc, I choose to stop the arc where I do at a point in the narrative where the two are blissfully happy. Um, I don't think the ending of Life of Riley, for instance, is a particularly happy one. Uh, in fact, um, I, w- I, would, I would guess that in five or six years, most of those people will have gone back to the original relationships, um, you know, which was stagnant and unhappy. Uh, we, we, we never quite improve. I mean... Um, I'm rather more pessimistic than that. Well, in Life of Riley, you've you've set yourself a bit of a puzzle in that you have a title character who is often spoken of but never seen. Why the choice to make your title character invisible to the audience? I think because the play is, in the end, not about him, not about George Riley. It's about the other people who are affected by the death of uh, a friend uh, or an ex-lover or a potential lover, uh, whatever. But he's significant in most of their lives, Um, if not directly, then probably indirectly. And um, 
the the the, the George was, uh, in a sense, as indeed we all are, and it's quite interesting if you sit in a room with a group of people whom you know, and they're all talking about another person that you don't know, you get quite a fantastically interesting um, triangulation on this person, and they all talk about a slightly different person. And um, often I find myself sitting there wondering, um, I wonder what this person really is like. George Riley is um, is neither um, uh, not exactly what anyone in the play describes. He is probably an amalgam, um, but it, people have known him various stages of his life. They've known him in a different role. Jack knows him as his best friend. A woman knows him. One character knows him as her very first love, and. What a what a thirty years ago. Um, one woman knows him as a potential lover. Um, another who was married to him for eleven years, and that it puts a completely different spin on the on what George is like. But nowhere do we meet George, and I think if we did meet him, he would probably not. Um, some poor actor would have to convey all these different facets, um, and we would he would probably be a profound disappointment. And I've, I leave it to our, our audience to, to draw their own George um, from the evidence. And I, I think it's more interesting that way. Well, you leave it to the audience. Did you leave it to the actors? Did you, did you give them more of a picture of George? And indeed, did you as a playwright have a cohesive picture of who George is? I, I had a, an idea of George, um, but I, I didn't foist my idea uh, any more than I than I will on the audience, on the actors. I said, you know, you have your own George in your own lives. Um, and I said, you know, to the actress, um, this George is your very first love, and if you have a fond memory of that, then please just dig into that. And uh, um, it's a private thing between you and your memory. Um, and I don't really want to know about it, uh, except that if that becomes your version of George, and I've never really sat down and, and talked to them about it um, in any detail. I didn't do that because uh, deliberately, because um, he, that's not the important thing. And the important thing is it, that he rests somewhere in their hearts or their minds um, as characters. And if they dig into their own personal experiences, then so be it. Um, but um, that's why I employ actors, because they... Uh, they explore them. They're they're free then to explore themselves, and I give them, you know, the outline, and I say, you know, you guys fill it in. Yet last night you did a post-show discussion with the cast, and some of them spoke about having been in productions of your plays not directed by you, and uh, the answer to one question was that an actor said, "Well, the difference about being directed by Alan." in one of Alan's plays than being directed by someone else in one of Alan's plays is Alan knows what the characters are thinking. Do you think that's true? Do you give them more than what's on the page? Uh, I hope not. Um, I hope uh, I, they sort of, I will put them right, but um, I, I try and I try to be as, as hands off as possible. I believe that, uh, when I'm directing an actor, even in one of my plays, um, they should make the first stab. They, they instinctively, I encourage them instinctively to jump in and to start creating the character and meeting the character. And um, I, I likened it a, a bit to giving a party where the actors are on one side of the room and the characters are on the other, and I affect an introduction. And I say, uh, you know, Kim, this is Colin. Colin, this is Kim. Now get on with it. Um, and um, if if it works um, and chemistry works, the the miracle is that that that, that the actor will bring a, a lot of themselves to the character, and the character will bring in turn a lot of themselves to the actor, and, and that is a miraculous process. And all I am there to do is to affect introductions, and there and thereafter try and avoid misunderstandings. Um, no, 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 I, I don't think he's like that. Um, uh, if, if somebody shoots up completely the wrong street. But it, it, it's always a delicate balance because 
the contribution an actor makes to a character in an individual production um, is is often quite invaluable. Um, and it, it's another dimension which you mustn't jump on. Uh, instinctively, sometimes I see an actor attempting something which I, I would never have envisaged in a character. And uh, I, I, my, a little voice in me says, wait, 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 Let, let's wait 24 hours and see if this works. If it doesn't work, the actor will probably, if they're intelligent, shelve it. Uh, and, and they'll say, that didn't work, did it? And you say, no, I was just watching to see if you made that decision. If, if often the decision they've made about the character is fascinating enough that you, you encourage them by non-interference uh, to go ahead and make that exploration. Um, hopefully, I, I had known enough about the characters never to let them go on for two weeks down a completely blind alley and make a character of, that I've created uh, with a whole set of values that have nothing whatever to do with them. But most actors are intelligent enough to know from the feel, and I employ, because I'm lucky enough to employ my own actors, um, which is not always true with directors. You know, they get voiced by producers' choices and you know, necessities of financial casting. Sometimes they they have other problems, but I always have chosen the actor, and I have a have a gut instinct that they will understand and understand my characters and. Um, will enjoy and the exploration of them um, and appreciate them and, and care for them and eventually um, love them, um, which is important, important mm. moment to encourage and to enjoy. When there are productions of your plays that you are not directing, I would imagine that there are directors who call you or email you or text you or what have you with questions about the plays how much guidance are you willing to give when someone reaches out to you in that way? Well, oddly enough, um, I don't get many from directors. Um, uh, directors tend, on the whole, to want to talk to you before they start because they want to be ahead of the game. So if there are any outstanding problems... Um, they will talk to you. The other people who get in touch with me are actors in productions who get who are getting lost. Uh, they are not getting probably the help they feel they should be getting from the director, and that is a problem because I don't either want to come between the director and the actor. And they're often actors who have worked with me and who miss my input. So I tend to work in very broad generalities. I, I refuse to say, no, don't do this, uh, do that moment like that. But I will say, uh, she's an extrovert who, 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 who doesn't really listen to people uh, or something like that. You know, I mean, it's quite general. They'll often say to me, this has been my take on it and this is what the director wants of me, but my instinct is, is not that. Uh, can you suggest an alternative which can give us a compromise between the two of us um, and then I'm able to advise. But um, it's very difficult because as a director-writer, um, I, I try and keep the roles strictly separate. Um, I don't bring the, the writer into the rehearsal room with me. Um, and I certainly don't, as a writer, when I'm sitting in on someone's production, um, if I do sit in on it, which is very rare, but I, I won't bring the director with me um, if they're not happy, the actors, they'll look over the director's shoulder at me as the font of all knowledge. And I'm really not. Um, the exploration of characters is, is, is something I share with the actors. Um, I know my ground rules um, and, and the plays. My job is, my job as a director, and I think it's the job of all directors, is, is a global one. Um, I, I, will, I will look at a contribution of an actor and, and really just judge what they can't judge. Are they unbalancing the play somehow or failing to make the narrative work in their interpretation? And um, I can point out the act rather than the, the scene, the, 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 the scene rather than the, the stretch of dialogue. And so I can look in longer term and I can see the, the other characters in view. Of, uh, and the, the, the fatal thing, of course, is having actors giving each other notes, which is terrible. Uh, and all this does ends in a, 
an amiable anarchy quite often because um, and one has to be there like an arbitrator who, who, who steps in rather quickly if that happens and say look um, there's only one there's only one set of decisions to be made here and that's the only time I'm dictatorial is, um, is in the casting vote to pursue this line of questioning to the next logical step when we spoke the first time you had placed a moratorium on your plays being done in the West End, largely for business reasons and choices made by producers that you did not agree with. That moratorium has ended, and we've seen a highly successful production of The Norman Conquests, and I believe there was also, was it Bedroom Farce? Yes. That got done. For you, for the first time in something like 30 years to allow your work to be done in the West End, not directed by you, is a certain amount of letting go. So how does it feel to then go in and see your shows, the playwrights' shows, done by these other directors? It's a curious experience, and um, uh, as, I, as you say, I, I had a moratorium, but it, it still exists on new work. Um, I wouldn't let a new play of mine go in there. Hmm. But I'm happy with this vast back catalogue of you know 74 plays to let let the 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 old ones in. Uh, why not? Um, uh, there, there is undoubtedly um, a fresh generation of people who haven't seen them. Um, to my horror, uh, uh, as I get older, the, the 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 audience that were around in the um, in the 70s or 80s uh, were probably uh, when they were those plays were written are uh, only just old enough some of them to go and see it I mean going to the Norman Conquests recently in London um, I was sort of very conscious that I was probably the oldest person in the in the theatre uh, it was a predominantly young audience and the excitement for me apart from the, the excellence of the production was um, in watching a new audience enjoying it and a young audience and I thought I'm, I'm still talking to people apart from people of my own age you know in their 70s um, it's delightful when, when, when you find you are still communicating um, and that the behaviour of the characters in the Norman Conquest still is relevant to a young audience, uh, even though they are quaint old 70s people and there's no attempt to update them. Um, but they, the human nature carries on plus ça change, as they <laughs> say. So since the moratorium remains on with new plays, if I date it properly, you've probably written eight to ten plays since that began. Why do you continue then to not have your shows be seen in the West End, the new work? The pleasure I, I have in directing a new play is in... I mean, let's face it. I'm something of a control freak. Um, I, uh, I have my. You own. did stop acting in them, so <laughs> you, you, you let go. So I still, I still have a theatre which, which I don't no longer run. But the the management and the existing artistic director are happy for me to come in there and do a couple of shows a year uh, on a hands free basis. So I don't have to bother about changing the light bulbs as well. But um, nonetheless, I, I am in the similar role directing and rehearsing a company of my own within a, in the company of this year I have a company of six and I chose an old revival um, of a play in the, from the 90s Communicating Doors which fitted well and cross-cast well with my idea for, for Life of Riley so the two can play in sync uh, and I can have the same company because the joy of is obviously working in the same with the same set of actors over a period uh, and not just on a one-off basis and all these benefits uh, i think uh, with my own writing which is very much a, a company based writing it always has been a few of my plays a leading character has sneaked through the barrier but mostly you know plays like woman in mind there's undoubtedly a central woman in that and uh, star casters seize eagerly onto it. But um, nonetheless, players of mine, right from the very beginning, relatively speaking, uh, How the Other Half Loves, The Norman Conquest particularly, are six-handers, four-handers. 
Um, and um, the problem is that the, um, when they come to the West End, the first question these days, which has been asked and has been asked for a very long time, is who do we have in it? Who can we get in it? Who can bring, can make the box office ring, the tools in the box office ring? And we start that old chase of, well, he, he could play it. Um, he's 20 years too old, uh, and uh, but he's very popular on television. Um, and uh, very rarely do we go, yes, that person, that is perfect person to play it. And usually you're scrabbling around and you, and the whole thing becomes unbalanced then. I mean, you sit and watch. Uh, when I first had a play on a, of mine in... Uh, the second time I had a play on of mine in the West End, it was How the Other Half Loves, and it, it starred Robert Morley, who was... I, I have to be grateful to for launching my career on a massive and financial upbeat. Uh, and um, uh, he brought my name very much to the public's attention. But nonetheless, uh, one or two critics wrote of the play, um, this is a vehicle for Mr. Morley, and uh, he's ably supported by the other five actors. And I began to look a little bit jaundicedly at that. And it was only uh, about five or six years later when the Actors' Company, which was a, a now defunct but uh, self-announced group of actors, what the name suggests, did the play again, and somebody wrote, hey, this is quite a good play. Uh, underneath all that, and it works very well with without Robert Morley, um, and the play ticked on as it had done in Scarborough. Now I just know that, that a play like Life of Riley, um, that there are one or two parts that uh, undoubtedly producers will seize on and say, now, um, in fact, one used to have the, the macabre experience of sitting in in the theatre on the producer's visit in Scarborough, and um, having the conversation afterwards, who are we going to get to play these actors' parts? And they hadn't, the actors hadn't finished with them yet, and they were my company, and I worked with them, and I was feeling so disloyal. It's like, like sitting in your wife's house and saying, who are you going to have a love affair with next? Um, mm. And it, it, I felt dreadful. So I reacted against this by trying to bring the companies down, and... Um, I, I succeeded ultimately in bringing uh, a group of six to the Duchess Theatre straight from Scarborough, direct transfer um, uh, in a trilogy called Damsels in Distress. And um, I, I suspected in my paranoia that the management had deliberately not made it work. Um, it didn't work anyway. I mean, we just never made a diamond that was very sad and dying experience as, as shows always are when they when they fail to gel um, you know the audience is dwindling and, and you know the passionate few who say I've come seven times I just love it and you know you know you're in trouble then uh, and um, the, um, the the result was that um, I realised that neither option the star casting option um, star casters plus two or three others um, or bringing the company in neither worked and there was a another way, which was to bring the plays somewhere else, like um, not in the West End, but but bring them so that enough people saw them. And then we found this marvellous bonus that um, on three occasions, you take them to New York, to the 59 East 59th Street Theatre um, on the Brits on Broadway, and the actors can be New York actors, uh, and uh, they can they can be judged as such because there was never the the, the enormous pressures that a that a Broadway uh, show, equally as much as a West End show, probably more so, has of you know name casting. Um, straight plays really are very very vulnerable. Um, most of them have never made it into the West End musicals and plays from the great institutions like the National and the Royal Court, of course, um, have, um, have taken up the baton, uh, the cudgels now for, for new work. And um, it was always thus. I, I don't think I remember, in my memory, any plays premiering <laughs> completely straight into the West End. Hmm. Uh, all mine had the Scarborough springboard. People like Willie Russells went to Liverpool um, at least a, a huge pre-London tour um, 
going around the the provinces, so called, uh, um, trying it out on the luckless <laughs> locals, uh, trying to get it right. Um, that was always the way. You know, the, the commercial is too risky. Since you bring up Fifty Nine is Fifty Ninth, let's let's talk about that because, as you say, you've brought three shows over: Private Fears, mm-hmm. when we spoke the first time. Um, which was an enormous critical success mm-hmm. and whetted the appetite and resulted in the success of the entire intimate exchanges being performed over the course of a month. Um, and then more recently, My Wonderful Day. But you are bringing over shows into a small venue, even though now with the success of the Normans, the success at 59 is 59, one would think you could support a larger venue. Is it enough for your work and the actor's work to be seen in, what is the house there, 150, 130 seats? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, um, I, I think it is enough. I I, I, I think in it, it would just be swallowed up in a big commercial house. Um, we took the play on tour when it came back from New York. Which play? Uh, My Wonderful Day. Uh, and uh, we took it round to to, to theatres, and it, it 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 stood up very well. But uh, of course, it was never big big venues. Um, uh, and um, of course, my my work always starts; it's always born in the round. Um, and the, it's not just the shape of the theatre, but the the configuration of the audience to the actor, um, and it's pitched to an in the round audience. Um, in, in a an intimate, not too intimate way, um, um, it, and it suits the style of writing. Um, I mean, life of Riley is is a is a I think quite delicate at, at, at heart, and um, it would it would look it's an oil it's a, it's a watercolor, and um, I don't want to blow it up into an oil painting in a very big canvas on a big big stage with a big gold arch around it. Um, it would look weird. Hmm. Is that the same rationale? Not many people may know, but uh, five years ago, you were going so far as to do casting for an American company of private fears in public places, and ultimately the production was scuttled. Yes, it was, it was scuttled. Um, but I, I did work with... Um, with uh, with the Schubert organization uh, for a little bit, um, and um, it it was it was it was interesting. It was an interesting experience because obviously I was happy to try and do the equivalent of what we did with the British cast. I appreciated that uh, we needed an American cast, and I was happy to, to to spend time and interview actors. I met some amazingly good stage actors. It has to be said. There's a there's a lot of quality there. Um, and they understood it had an inherent understanding uh, of my stuff and, and give or take the odd dodgy accent um, which I, I, I knew we could work with in rehearsals and, and that they knew they could work with there was some very good potential there uh, and I was quite happy um, but we were always going to do it um, in a small space in fact we, we arranged to to do it off-Broadway on the Little Schubert Theatre, uh, which was I, I, I fell in love with as a space. I said, this is great. I mean, this is, this is an end stage of a scale. Um, but I, I, a little warning bell was saying, why isn't it full of shows? Um, and commercially, it doesn't add up. Um, and so I got another letter from the producer saying, uh, well, we can't make it work. You know, the figures don't stack up. Um, and they, they said, um, can we make it an on-Broadway show um, and do it in a bigger theatre? And uh, uh, I said, well, I don't understand it. It's, it's <laughs> the six actors, and it's a, it's a tiny little show. I mean, um, all the, the furniture came from Ikea, and, uh, and um, <laughs> they said, we can't do a Broadway show with furniture from Ikea, for God's sake. Uh, and I said, well, why? these are huge budgets. Um, massive budgets. I wouldn't know where to start spending them. And they said, oh, well, we'll spend it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there were people attached. I mean, uh, um, on a Broadway show, there are people whom I would, wh- whom I appreciated need to be paid because of union reasons, but I would never have used. I've never used, I've never used an assistant director, and certainly not a second assistant director uh, in my life. 
uh, and they would be bored to tears and they would just be fetching me tea. Uh, but I, I knew the play well enough to be able to work with it. And I, I didn't want an assistant director around. So I said, no, you don't need that. Then um, they said, well, you've got to have one. <laughs> so in the end, of course, it, it made financial rubbish. Um, and um, actors began to drop out and saying, well, you know, unless we sign something. So in the end, it never worked. But it was it was it was me holding out for, for, for what I wanted to create. Uh, and they said, well, you know, the man's impossible. He doesn't even want to make it financially balanced. Um, so <laughs> I wandered away from that. And hmm. I was very sad. And they were sad. I mean, to give them their due, they got it quite excited about it. Hmm. Uh, uh, Let's go to a different tack. You touched on it earlier, which is the fact that for the better part of four decades, you were the artistic director of the Stephen Joseph Theatre. And you even said to me once, when you think about what your job is, your job was running the Stephen Joseph Theatre. You also directed and wrote plays. Um, now that you are out of the day-to-day, do you miss it? No, uh, not really. Uh, I, I, I found it increasingly tiresome that um, as I was closing down, and I'm not sure... Um, my activities, and I was beginning to close them down a good decade ago, um, probably more. Uh, I First of all, I stopped directing other people's plays um, because they took so much energy from me, um, just in terms of responsibility. I mean, directing my own show was responsible enough, but somebody else's play, <laughs> you're holding their baby, um, and you, you really don't want to drop it. Uh, if you drop your own baby, so you're right. Uh, but um, so I stopped directing other people's plays, um, and then uh, so I directed my own. Um, I then began to to, to think about um, scheduling the rest of the season, uh, and I began to began to find that very tiring um, because uh, scheduling a season is is very complicated, really. I mean, you've got to balance all sorts of considerations. First of all, the artistic balance, of course, which is most important. And then the financial balance, which is, um, you know, what do we do that's safe and what do we do that's risky? And we, we were a new play theatre. Uh, we are a new play theatre. Um, so it's very important that all the new plays weren't from me, that, that there should be another generation and a new play. Um, and because of the financial restrictions, I, I didn't have, and I, I, having said I never used one, I, I didn't have an associate director. Um, so it, suddenly the whole buck stopped with me. Uh, the second director who should have been there doing the other shows, and while I was writing, uh, they were looking for other shows, new work, and they were doing the doubling up as the job of the dramaturg which, um, or, or the script editor, which was um, something that, was, that, was, that seemed to work, um, you know, 15 years before, but uh, was slowly um, becoming impossible to the point when, you know, people were, we were beginning to lose key people and the associate director was the last straw for me. And I, I just found... Um, the pressures were just enormous. You know, what what are we going to do after Christmas? What are we going to do before Christmas? There's a space, space there. And I began to, to think, oh, what the hell? Until the last season, before before I gratefully handed over to Chris Monks, we'd be doing all my plays. I mean, and uh, <laughs> you can have too much of a good thing. Well, you have, any artistic director has the opportunity to say, these are the plays I want to do for me whether you do them as a director, whether you do them in your case as a playwright. When you're no longer the artistic director, your desires are not always the first thing on the artistic director's list to satisfy. Um, You wrote plays at times to meet the very specific needs of the company. You mentioned Damsels in Distress earlier. Damsels in Distress used the same company on the same set, even though the plays were unrelated. But you did that so you didn't have to build multiple sets that season. Now, when you talk to Chris Monks, you've indicated that, yes, you have your own company within the company. But are you given parameters under which you must work and under which you must fit your plays? 
the only parameters I'm I'm conscious of are cast size, um, which is and in in so far as the bulk of the budget does go to uh, the, the artistic budget does go towards actors and quite rightly uh, I uh, there's a sort of feeling in the theatre that you, you spend on that um, uh, Chris Chris is very up for for the pros, the principle of big companies make for better business um, audiences after a little bit Maybe if it's a stunning two-hander, we'll, we'll actually pay the money to see it. But after a bit, if they suss that there's only two actors actually in the building, they'll get a little bored and they'll say, "What? What am I? What am I getting for my money?" You know. I mean, one of the questions they used to ask at the box office is, "Is, is it a comedy?" And the second one was, "How many people are in it?" They really used to ask how yeah, big the cast yes. was. Hmm. Yeah, so they, they 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 wanted to know, and it's a Yorkshire thing, but it probably is is a little bit bigger than Yorkshire. Um, but it's an inherent in human nature. Am I getting my value for my money? But then you would play a trick on them, like write intimate exchanges, which had ten, twelve characters, but only two actors, yeah. and how many iterations of, of the play? Yes, I used to get complaints that um, all of them hadn't come on for about at the end, uh, and that was a great <laughs> tribute to the actors. <laughs> I don't think it's disgraceful. Most of them went home, um, and. Um, uh, but uh, that, that that's an exception. Uh, I mean, but normally um, people's pr- concept now of theatre and a good evening out is a band, uh, a lot of people jumping around and singing, um, and uh, anything less than that is probably not going to justify the ticket price. Um, and uh, you go, you can argue to your blue in the face that the amount that their money has to cover, that the number of people because theatre is. Theatre, uh, people intensive. I mean, it, it, it's it's as as you appreciate that the, the tip of the iceberg are those six actors, but th- there's a huge body of people supporting them. I mean, not just the immediate technicians and and artistic and creative team, but um, uh, but then you start on with a bricks and mortar theatre on on the finance department and the publicity department, and it goes on and on and on, and the administrators. Um, and the ushers and the restaurant people and the box office stuff. And so you're paying for all of those in your ticket price, um, along uh, not just the six actors. Um, mm. And it's proportionately um, shared between uh, in a company like ours between the, the different departments. Um, some people get paid more. Some people get paid less. Some people should get paid far too much, in my opinion. <laughs> Have we reached a point in the economics of theater, regardless of you as artistic director or Chris Monks as artistic director at the Stephen Joseph, where it would be impossible for you to create, say, the Revengers comedies again. Well, it's not. Uh, the Revengers comedies, uh, along with uh, the similar pieces, House and Garden and um, the Norman Conquest going right back, were all what I term event theater. And um, I always used to say, um, um, every decade or so, hey, we need an event. We need an event. Something that says, we're here, we're still here, we're, we're, still, we're still operating. The enemy for people coming to the theatre uh, in a town, which is their regular theatre, is that they, they soon, they rapidly get used to it. And then if the danger is they get out of the habit of going. And I, I used to talk to people who claim to be regular customers, and I said, "What's the last one you saw?" And it was probably two or three years before. And uh, they, they, they said, "Oh no, well we, we, we missed that one. Um, well we were away." Um, and um, I just wanted to to, to make a, a small explosion that just caught their attention and said, "Look, this is something quite different, and it's something that's quite unique." Um, um, now, um, that is not my job anymore. If I'm asked to do so um, by an artistic director, I'll provide it, uh, probably, um, if I've still got one in me. Uh, in fact, um, one of my ex-partners in crime, uh, Laurie Sansom, who, went, who was, uh, was the last of the associate directors to work at the Stephen Joseph with me, went on to run his own theatre in Northampton, and um, he did a rather nice little festival of my work 
the other year, and he said, can we talk about the idea you had, the event? Because uh, I need an event here. And I, I said, yeah, we'll put it on ice. Uh, um, but I, I said, you know, my first loyalty, obviously, to Scarborough, but if they don't want an event. Um, but obviously, it, it, they are governed by finance. Um, and um, there's a huge difference between me announcing House and Garden and blindly going ahead with it, um, despite the board's open mouth. Uh, look at me and say, well, he, I guess he knows what he's doing. It sounds crazy. Two plays running simultaneously. What, who's going to want to see it? And how's it going to work? Uh, but, the, you know, we, I I did a half of bullying and half their good faith um, would get it through. Um, but I'm not sure doing it through a third party, i.e. another artistic director, would have the same effect because he would start beads of sweat running down his face thinking, does this guy know what he's doing? Is he gone senile? Um, and um, so I, I just don't know. I mean, it may not be possible anymore. I have a fondness for using people's own words from the past and, and turning them back on them <laughs> and see how they feel about them now. When I spoke to you in 2005, you made the comment about musicals, I've stopped writing them, I don't enjoy it. And of the five plays that you have done since we last spoke, one of them, Awaking Beauty, was a musical. What prompted you to attack a form you didn't like again? I was just trying to lick it. And I think I'm def- I'm, I keep c- walking away admitting defeat. But I've lost several battles. But I'm, I'm still determined not to lose the war. Um, and so when a new form of a musical. This, this uh, Awaking Beauty um, used, used a musical, I think, in a way uh, that it hadn't been used before quite. I mean, one hates to say an original idea, but um, particularly with musicals, because there's so many come and go. Um, but this really did. Um, it had quite a big cast um, in, in, in so far as a a straight play went. Uh, it had a, a, a chorus of, um, I think it was six, um, who played all the small parts, but they also did most of the underscoring and indeed most of the musical work. Uh, it was a lot of it was a cappella, and it had a keyboarder, keyboard player, and that was it. Um, and um, then it had, on top of that, there were four principals. Um, and it was a chamber musical, uh, and I, I thought this um, this was quite interesting to, to explore. Um, it didn't use any of the traditional giant um, um, paraphernalia that most musicals go in for, um, huge sets, and it was very simply done, and it, just, it was in the round, and there was lights and a little bit of sound, but as I say, the sound was mostly provided by the by the voices, uh, you know, do, including door slams and and little in, incidental stabs, you know, <laughs> when the witch appeared. Uh, it was it was actually quite an amusing story, I, I thought, uh, in that it took it took the story of Sleeping Beauty uh, at the moment it finishes, uh, and the kiss uh, and the prince kissed her beauty awake, and she sat up and fell in love, and they both lived happily ever after, which was. <laughs> to my mind, no ending at all. Uh, As we established <laughs> earlier in this conversation. Yes. yes. So the, the prince kisses the princess awake. Uh, they gaze into each other's eyes. Uh, but unknown to them, watching is the very evil person who put the princess to sleep in the first place, Carabas the witch, who, who sees this. Uh, and falls in love simultaneously with the prince. Uh, so then the, the battle royal starts out with the princess, the true love, and Carabas trying to win the prince by foul means. Uh, and it finishes up with, them, with the prince and princess fleeing her wrath uh, into the real world. And they break through the gates of fairyland where none of the rules of normal life, and they're hurled into an industrial a state or um, a, a huge city um, where they are forced to, to, to live on and their rich fairy tale clothes disintegrate, their swords vanish, the gold melts and of, of course they're thrown on their uppers uh, and they live in a cold water flat and she is immediately pregnant with 
triplets, and the witch, meanwhile, hunts them and is advised that if she wants to, to, to make a go in the real world, she has to have a makeover. So she spends her ill-gotten wealth on having a, a tremendous um, and ridiculous um, plastic uh, makeover uh, in which suddenly this woman is transformed into a, 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 a frozen-faced Botoxed creature who, <laughs> who, who begins to pursue the prince. Um, and it, it's an irony, really, a parody on, on, on the real world after that. How does Fairyland compete with the real world? The pressures of finance and all that. But it's fascinating. You've told us the story <laughs> and not where the music came in. Did you do the lyrics yourself? Yes. So. yes. And Dennis, Dennis King, who, who, who I'd written one show with before, uh, uh, whenever, which was a children's show, actually. But uh, it was, was, and we, we have an easy working relationship. And um, But I, I, I threw in this, uh, this, I think you use it, use the term curveball, where um, I said, you know, can we use no instruments, Dennis? He went, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm writing a musical. I said, well, no, no, no. Can we? So he spent year, year, hours and weeks scoring it for the voices. Um, and then we had to find good singers who could carry it. Um, and it was, uh, it, it was interesting. So you were the anti-John Doyle. Instead of making the actors play the instruments, you gave them no instruments to <laughs> sing with at all. No, 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 no. That, so they, uh, they had to... to, to uh, I mean, apart from the musical director on the keyboard, um, as I say, um, who, who gave them the odd note, um, they, they, they carried the whole music, hmm. really. Uh, and um, it, it worked Really well. I mean, it was it was nice, uh, but I, I doubt if it was. It had legs um, f- for a big commercial. There is a there is a limit to how much you you can you can you can promote a, a small scale musical. It's almost a contradiction in terms, because um, by the time they get into um, the commercial theatre, they cost very much the same as or a little bit less than a normal musical. And uh, so you're charging the same ticket prices. I mean, when we opened by Jeeves in Broadway, on Broadway, uh, we were next door to um, to um, um, the producers, the producers, uh, which was a, a traditional <laughs> big musical, uh, and we were charging the same price as the producers, and we we just had cardboard boxes on stage. And so, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know where our money went. Uh, Do you think you'd try another musical? Since you say you. You would like to lick the form or try something mm. different with the form? Uh, nothing has occurred to me yet, um, but I, 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 I can never say never. Never okay. say never. Much is made, and I certainly commented on it in the introduction, about the number of plays you've written. And it's worth noting that that's actually a bit of a false number because it does not include some of your one-acts, it does not include some of your holiday entertainments and, indeed, your children's shows. Um, I'm curious, in particular, about the children's shows, because one does not think of major playwrights writing for children. When you've done that, do you have to set out with a different mindset, a different audience, or is it just a different type of story that you think will appeal to them? That's an interesting. I have had an interesting journey, give or take the first children's show I wrote, which was probably the third play I wrote. The first play in living memory I wrote specifically for children was a play called Mr. A's Amazing Maze Plays, and it was pitched for children. Um, and um, it's been a learning curve for me. I mean, you can you can read the theory about how to do things, but there is nothing to, to, to replace the hardcore experience of actually putting the shows in front of children. Um, my, my journey has been one where I wrote, I pitched a play specifically for young children. Uh, and it, it kept, um, and so it was a play where you'd say to adults, well, you might enjoy it, but only if you bring a child along with you, because I think it, it, it is specifically for children unless you're that rare thing of a child at heart and um i continued this this um writing but i kept upping the level 
to see where um, where the children's uh, attention would stop. Where were they? Where was the theme which would not interest them? And um, uh, it went on and on and on. And um, I got closer and closer to adult work. Um, the only rules I made myself are, you know, you can. Um, you can take an adult audience into a theatre and uh, shut all the doors and turn the lights off and scare them a bit uh, and leave them in the dark. Um, but with children, you, you must be fair and push the lights on again and open the doors and let them get out. Um, and my other, other rule, a little private rule I made for myself, um, which was never say anything's impossible. Um, it may be that you, you close doors on children. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I suddenly thought, if, if you say that a, a guy on stage is, is dying of an incurable disease, a, a, a particularly virulent form of cancer or, or something like that, and he dies in front of the kids, uh, which is not a good idea to do anyway, but um, not a good idea to do in front of anybody. Um, <laughs> but if... if if in the course of the play there is a possibility that they'll survive, um, I just always thought maybe there's a seven-year-old child sitting there who's going to become the great scientist of the future, um, and maybe you've just leave them the possibility of there is. It is possible to do this, and it is possible to find a cure, and um, that's a very simple example. But uh, always let them imagine that things are possible never close children's minds to the possibility uh, of, of achieving what they're destined to achieve. Uh, I'd hate to be responsible for that. So, um, no, I mean, uh, I, and the, the two crossed over, really, the children's work and the adult work crossed over, and then I wrote a play called Wild's Dreams, which was actually an adult children's show, uh, which was set around of people playing those one of those mad adult board games where they all became the characters they were playing. You know, they were playing um, the old wise one or the all-seeing child, and they all—it's like a Dungeons and Dragons yes, sort of yes, thing. Yes. Yeah, and it was—it was very much a children's show, and, the, and the, we've done it at the RSC actually. One of my few forays into that uh, organization, um, and uh, it was—it's quite bizarre. Uh, but nowadays. Um, um, I, I haven't written children's work for, for a long time now, not since I gave up artistic directing. Um, in fact, um, uh, the children's scene has now been absorbed into my adult work, and um, I am no longer perhaps as fearful as I would have been about including fantasy in the adult world. Hmm. That's, that's one of the, the benefits of working for the children's. Um, but I do believe children are owed intelligent drama uh, and um I, I i think the only point about it uh, from my own experience is don't ask inexperienced dramatists to write for children um who don't have the basic concepts uh, of how to create a play because all the things you need in a good adult play you need doubly in a in a children's work, you need good narrative, good, strong characters, a, a, a good drive forward. You know, to keep their attention. I mean, just you know, just just make it a strong play. Uh, as a playwright, as a director, as an artistic director, is there a different sense of reward from watching a children's audience or a, a mixed audience, since presumably they bring their parents, um, respond to a play than watching just adults? The stakes are higher. I will say to, to the actors, when the lights come up and something happens for about a minute, um, adults will go, oh, yeah, this is, uh, this is fairly interesting. Um, we'll give it another minute or two. Children, if you, after half a minute, they go boring and just turn around and talk to their friends, and uh, you, you've lost them. Uh, once that initial excitement of being in a building with, with, with entertainment and the promise of sweets in the interval has died off, they just they're just take it or leave it. I don't care who the hell you are. I don't care if you're the best dramatist in the world. I'm, and if, if it isn't going to be interesting, I'm going to talk to my friend because I, I, I have conversation to have. And conversely, if you, if you sit there uh, watching them 
enwrapped in the narrative. And uh, I always use it, the and then factor, and then, and then. And it's uh, any parent who sat on the edge of a bed and read a kid a story will know the moment at the end of a chapter, and then he opened the door, and what did he see? Da-da-da-da. Well, it's time for bed now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, But, you know, I... And I had great moments of of inspiration in kids' shows, which which were born of of this panic of, of, are they going to get bored? Are we going to get bored? Um, There was one in in quite a sophisticated one I wrote called The Champion of Parabanu, in which, um, for reasons too complicated to to mention, the girl finds herself with superhuman strength and... um, in an inn, and the innkeeper gets a bit up close and personal with her, and she picks him up by the jaw and uh, just pushes him across the room. And having a good athletic actor, he did the rest, and he flew across the room. He bounces across, over the table, and she, her amazing physical strength, apparently, um, loses him crashing onto the floor, and she then dusts her hands rather a la uh, Oliver Hardy and goes, hmm. That's good. And then she goes out. <laughs> Hi, I've got super between powers now. And the guy just lies there. And I thought, I need, now need to get into um, into the next scene um, and on with it. Um, and uh, so we fade the lights and we have a little bit of music. And then uh, somebody comes on and says, we are now, um, we're now in April, several months later. And uh, I thought, this is so boring. There must be a better way around this. So I made the uh, made it that the innkeeper hit the ground, and he says, "Oh, oh, ow! I don't think I'm going to wake up until April." Oh, and uh, then the lights come up, and a, a, a man comes on and says, "Good morning, innkeeper," on this fine April morning, and it, I'd done the jump, <laughs> and the kids went, "Yep, that's fine," um, <laughs> and I was very pleased with it. Two lines and one uh, one lighting effect, and we were off, and we we got through the chapter. We've been talking professional theater, talking children's theater. I want to ask for a moment about amateur theatrics. <laughs> you have included amateur theatricals in some of your plays. It's figures in Life of Riley where there's an amateur theatrical production of your own, <laughs> relatively speaking, being done. Uh, certainly, chorus of disapproval. And your work is, especially here in England, a staple of amateur theatrical troops. And I'm just wondering, do you ever actually see amateur productions of your work or, or hear about them? I, I'm informed about them. I, I very rarely get to see them. Well, I very rarely get to see any productions of my work. I mean, vainly, there, there's so many of them. Um, and, um, but I've always had a fondness and a, and a gratitude to amateur societies because they, 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 they do... They do an awful lot of my stuff, and uh, probably um, we 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 find we find this when we're doing a play like Life of Riley, where yes, there is a production of, uh, of relatively speaking, as you say, in there, and and just occasionally on some nights we get a group of obviously uh, an amateur society who who've obviously just done the play and, or know the play, and uh, they begin laughing like drains up. I mean, so... Um, <laughs> because they know the yeah, little bits yeah. of the play in yeah. a way that the average audience wouldn't. Yes, I mean, um, I, I, have a great, I have a great fondness, and um, I, I've always... Uh, I'm probably imbued by Stephen, who, 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 Stephen Joseph, who was my mentor, who, who of course, started the theatre here. Um, and he was a, a great... Um, a great... Uh, Champion of uh, of the fact that amateur theatre and professional theatre in a in a small community c- could run side by side, and there are very strong views, particularly in the professional theatre, that amateurs have no place um, in in the in the scheme of things. Um, and the uh, amateurs, are, I've met certain amateurs who who believe themselves in, infinitely superior to professional actors. We, on the other hand, do it for love. Uh, you just do it for money, um, which is it's guaranteed to piss off a professional actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but in between this, there is a, a, a sort of support, um, and um, I've no objection to including a sort of little tribute to, to to the to the to the love and to dedication that doctors' wives and um, other people give to their amateur societies, and. Um, Indeed, uh, 
I mean, I, I've sometimes had gentle fun, but I never make absolute mock of them. Um, but, um, the fact is that they have other problems, like um, <laughs> we're going on holiday in two weeks. <laughs> we can't finish the show. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to ask you specifically about the effect of the recognition, but you did receive a Tony Award earlier this year for lifetime achievement in the theater. Uh, I stood in the wings of Radio City Music Hall as you went out to speak. And my question is simply, had you ever played a hall that big? Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) And what was going through your mind as you went out to speak your speech? Of course, I'd never been. Uh, uh, My first view of Radio City Music Hall from the stage looking at an auditorium that seemed to me absolutely full of people. And um, as one stood there, um, they stood as of one um, and started clapping. Um, and I think it was the nearest I got to a to an emotional breakdown, actually. Um, and I stood there and I, I, I said my prepared words and um, probably left out a lot of them. Um, then I turned to get to walk upstage uh, because you're all standing in those places and you're told where to stand and um, uh, and you've no idea where you're going. <laughs> you've no idea of the ins and outs of the set. And then I turned around. I, I saw the people who were, were going to present me with it and I, I, I nearly fell over. Um, I, I mean, I, I know I'm not all that physically balanced at the moment with, with, with the stroke and arthritis and things, but uh, I, I just... I just the room spun for me, um, and I thought, crikey, it would be a terrible thing if I dropped dead in the middle of the stage. <laughs> what, what an ending. <laughs> that, that certainly wasn't our goal. <laughs> no, no, I, I was so touched. Hmm. And, um, of course, it was um, it was the uh, Olivier Award, which I won the equivalent the year before, but multiplied by three in terms of scale. Hmm. And uh, it was an enormous honor and um um, considering I've I've not been, you know, the English Neil Simon of Broadway and produced hit after hit after hit, I've produced a long body of work and some of it's been more successful than others, but certainly not not the golden boy of Broadway um, I, I was ever meant to be. Um, um, I just found it, you know, just uh, unexpected and um, sh- uh, shattering. Even though I said a few minutes ago that the number of plays is even a false number, now there is number 75. I don't know. What is that? The Diamond Jubilee (laughs) play. Um, Is there any – do you feel any pressure about making number 75 in some way special simply because – People are now counting. Uh, I think the the my my decision on this is 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 Chris Chris Monks came to me uh, a few months ago. He said, um, "Would you provide another one for 2011?" Um, I don't need to remind you; it's number seventy-five, and we ought to make it something special. And I said, "What you mean in scale?" And he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, please." So then, um, with the um, with the, uh, <laughs> the the change of government and the big uh, um, financial cuts swinging through the whole of the, the society, and uh, theatre was right in the forefront of that. Um, and uh, I heard rumblings that uh, well, we're not going to have enough for next year. I went. Uh, I had another meeting with him, and I said, uh, "Is this big show still hold?" Uh, and he went, "Oh." Um, yeah, well, well, it could be special, uh, but not too big. Uh, and I said, okay, let's let's be sensible and just play your natural game. And um, like a English batsman, when they reach uh, ninety nine, um, you just play on and see if you can make a hundred. Um, and um, so I'm going to make it just the, the next play. Uh, and I, I'm blessed with the. The idea, uh, which is uh, beginning to excite me, but um, until we've we've got 
the run of this one comfortably underway. Um, I, I'll um, I'll wait, uh, but I'm due to write it very soon, uh, so it's 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 steaming. Um, and apart from that little interregnum while I while I had the stroke and in hospital and for about eight or ten weeks with when my mind was uh, was scrambled uh, really with with uh, no idea whether I was. Uh, even going to direct again, um, and I certainly had no I, no play idea. Um, I've always been lucky enough uh, to have a little idea, um, and I, I just pull myself now from one idea to the next. Um, and um, it, the whole process has sort of become continuous, like the moment of the idea, right through to the moment of the first night, when, the, um, which is a big long journey, about a year. Really, um, it, it's uh, it's totally captivating and exciting, and uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And with that, I'll use the phrase you just used, Sir Alan Akebourne, play on. <laughs> and thank you for being with us again thank on you. Downstage Center. Thank you, Hard. Post-production for this edition of Downstage Center is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This program was recorded in Scarborough, England. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.